Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is just after four o'clock and it's my last program for 2015. It's Jan Bartlett, but I'll be here until 5.30 this afternoon. I'm not sure what's happening over the summer period, but I'm sure if you're a regular listener, you'll be keeping in touch and finding out what's going on on 3CR. Today, it's um, Mr Kevin Healy's, as it said, his last, and he won't be back until February, early February, but this is his last week that was. And Brian McKinlay, historian and author, will be looking at all things to do with 1916, which the centenary is coming up next year, but also looking at Australia, what Australia was leading up to World War One, And finally, specific issues, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, he'll be looking at what the new Prime Minister in Australia might mean for the Pacific nations, what the Paris talks will mean for the Pacific, and then a wrap-up of the Pacific for the year. And we'll be seeing Nick again as Brian and Kevin in the new year. A week, Jane Lister, when did you see a conference in an upmarket Paris hotel of those who believe there is no such thing as climate change attracted all of 15 people from all over the world, showing how out of touch those warmers are who believe that there just may be such a thing. Conference addressed by that giant mind of non-scientific, non-research, Lord Christ off the planet, plonked tons of carbon, informing the world climate change was, well, well, hang on. So called climate change was a ruse, an excuse, a pretext. It's a pseudo moral cover to give the UN of the US of the UN of the world a form of supranational, indeed global governing power from which there will be no escape. He really said that, no embellishment. In other words, an evil socialist plot. His lordship also informed us the palace coup, which overthrew former true blue Aussie big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, was also a UN of socialist plot to ensure no sensible voice attended the Paris conference. Mr. A bit more for the bosses would have used his influence to moderate some of the nonsense. He has put the matter of warmest lies, scientists fabricating evidence, into the hands of True Blue Aussie. So, sorry, please. There is nothing to match the reliability, the honesty, the results of non-scientific, non-research. So next year, listener, we can expect all those warmest scientists and their mindless followers to land in the slot, as long as the slot doesn't go under. Meanwhile, down the road, True Blue Aussie agreed 
maybe we should look at a 1.5% increase in planet frying rather than the 2% if our highly polluting Pacific neighbours aren't going to sink into the briny with the Minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers who seem to be carrying the obfuscations, or sorry, the discussions, also agreeing we should stick to our sort of commitment to sort of do something about it, which the long-haired greenie lot claim would be more like 3%. So, Julie, how will we change our commitment now that the world says we should halve what we said we'd do? We have agreed to work toward 1.5%. Yes, but how will we get there? Or will we sign the agreement? I don't understand. What else do you expect us to do? No, actually, the True Blue Aussie Chamber of Profits, through its Knows What's Good for All of Us spokesperson Innes, Will Ax the Poor, supported a brilliant solution, international carbon permits. If we can buy global permits, we can reach our low target by having others do the cutting emissions bit. We can keep polluting to our heart's content and meet our commitments. It's a no-brainer. It's reassuring having people who know what's good for all of us who are able to talk to people like Julie and ensure they adopt what's good for all of us. Uh, by the way, Julie, speaking of our serious uh, shows we, we really care commitment, uh, see in that survey of the 58 countries responsible for 90% of emissions, we ran third last. Uh, well, you could say we ran sixth of those in the 50s. And note, we came in ahead of Kazakhstan and Saudi Arabia. They should be ashamed of themselves. Now... Being big national economic guru, as we know, requires deep financial wisdom, knowledge, expertise, literacy, an understanding of how to make the rich richer, which is good for all of us, and express empathy with the poor getting poorer, knowing that too is good for all of us, including the poor who are getting poorer, guaranteeing no one will fall through the cracks, the safety net, whatever that is, but whatever it is, we can lay odds it must be contracted out to the rich getting richer, because that's also good for all of us. And I raise this because our current economic guru, Scuttlebem Moore Lashson, possesses these qualities in spades, as have the long line of his predecessors, with his immediate predecessor, Joe Hackey, the workers, a standout in the economic literacy stakes. And Scuttlebem's literacy reached a crescendo. Ackby Heights this week, if that's not a mixed metaphor, or for that matter, even if it is, when he discovered what the non-economic literate states were doing with taxes. They were, sit down, listen, you're not going to believe this, they were spending them, spending. Whoever heard? With the states, it's tax and spend. He condemned their profligacy. The difference is irreconcilable. We want taxes to be used for their prime purpose, uh, which is, scuttle them, to reduce taxes. What? We, we collect taxes to reduce taxes? Exactly, and, and not exactly. We, we increase the only fair and equal tax, the GST, which taxes us all equally, treats us as equals, allowing us to reduce taxes on our great good for all of us corporates and the rich, which is good for all of us. Although a 
touch of financial schizophrenia with the old Scuttlebem. See, he attacked the states for raising taxes to spend on non-essentials like health and education. Then when asked why he thought they should support a higher and broader GST, he said they needed extra money because of shortfalls in health and education spending. Yeah, yes, how come they've got shortfalls? Because we slash the health and education budgets. So slashing them means you can argue for a GST, but then they can't spend the GST on what you slashed. Which just shows how economic literacy is so essential to my job. But let me make it clear. The government has no firm position on the GST either way. Well, that's pretty clear. Surely no one would think they've already made up their mind or whatever they think with. Of course, the deep expertise in these areas is shared around the cabinet table, the collective think with. Take the Minister for Innovation, 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 Innovation and Innovation, Christopher Payne in there, explaining how a few of those non-essentials might have to become even more non-essential because of the spending, good grief, spending? Spending on innovation? Well, not spending, grants, subsidies, handouts, gifts, and the non-collecting to spend through massive tax concession to start-ups, to innovation, innovation, innovation. Some cruel souls have suggested the tax dodgers, sorry, tax concessions, will have the tax lawyers and tax advisors drooling, but all within the law, of course, the very flexible law. Anyway, Christopher said on where all these handouts will come from, we don't want to be seen to be robbing Peter to pay Paul. So I ask all the Peters and Petras out there, don't look. There are some great minds in there, listener, and he's one of them. Don't we hang on his every word? Then again, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, makes Christopher Scuttle the Meta et al. look like Mensa material. Reflected also by the government's favourite so-called think tank, the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, which opened an article this week on why the banks and big financial institutions should get their hands on all that lovely, lovely super with the industry superannuation model now is in dire need of reform. The scandals that arise because of the conflicts created by union involvement in the financial services industry must be dealt with urgently. Yes, listener, here we have logic and argument run riot. Just leap straight in, assume, don't waste time explaining, let alone proving, dire need, scandals, conflicts. The article sensibly does not mention that the dire need conflict scandal funds outperform where he wants all the money to go. No, it's a given. Evil unions have no role in dealing with workers' money. Leave that to the experts. On that highly respected tax avoidance industry, good news and bad news for the legal profession. Good news is, it's predicted they'll be, well, the tax avoidance lawyers, sorry, tax lawyers, will be the big winners from new tax avoidance legislation. Well, well, they have to find the loopholes. The bad news? This headline, Robots Threaten Jobs of Bankers' Lawyers. Their bad news is our good news, I would have thought, but then again, we may never know. How could we tell the difference? Drug company Record Ban Kisser, 
Record, unfortunate name for a drug company, was fined over misleading claims with so-called painkiller neurofined for lying. Interesting. They were fined for misleading consumers and said they did it to help consumers. Anyway, asked to comment, Record said the decision was a pain in the ass for which they doubtless have a product. Finally, back to that warmest climate nonsense. Notice the fossils who helped finance the conference included the French owner of our very own Hazelwood Brown Coal Super Polluter. Why would a brown coal super polluter sponsor a conference on warmest nonsense? Notice they were popping the corks in the boardrooms and congratulating themselves on their commitment to find the proper balance between saving the planet and their bottom line. As Eliza sang in My Fair Lady, words, 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 I'm so sick of words. Which is great news for you, listener. No more of these words, words, words for six weeks. I'm out of here. A break for all of us. Enjoy the dear baby Jesus' birthday and stay safe. Good afternoon. And it's a big thank you to Mr. Kevin Healy for his contributions during the year. And I do believe that he won't be back until maybe the first or second week in February. But we can hope that he has a wonderful holiday. Next Historian and author Brian McKinlay. Jan, as this is the last episode of our conversations during this year of 2015, I thought I might take the opportunity to look at something that's been emphasised all through the year, and that's the First World War, and particularly the Gallipoli campaign. Some historians, and certainly politicians, Uh, have fallen in love with that part of Australian history and one of the, I think, rather pernicious things that people of that ilk say is that Gallipoli marks the beginning of Australian nationhood. Now, that's a sort of heroic assumption they like to make and no one would deny the death roll and the sacrifices of those often very young men who were drawn into the war after 1914 and finished up dying uh, in great numbers in fact over 50,000 deaths in Australia in the battlefields of Europe uh, in that terrible war now I wanted today to, to mention two facts next year I've talked with you about the fact that there are some important historical celebrations Uh, and historical celebrations of events in 1916 because 1916, the year coming up, 2016 of course, is the centenary of two very dramatic and in Australian terms very important events. The first was at Easter 2016 when a group of Irish Republicans staged rebellion in Dublin and several other cities What became known in history is the Easter Rising. Now, Ireland had a long, bitter, disastrous history under British colonialism, uh, and there had been a rising in Ireland recently, half a century earlier in 1848, and then through the 19th century, various attempts to achieve Irish independence. And a very big independence movement before the First World War was represented in the British Parliament with about 50 members. Almost the entire portion of what I'd call Catholic Ireland had voted for the Irish nationalists. And in 1914, uh, as the First World War broke, almost without warning across Europe, 
the British Parliament was actually looking at finally having two parliaments in Ireland, a, a parliament in the Protestant North and a parliament in Dublin with home rule. Now, these would have been, in a sense, like our state governments. There would be a, a national government in London, of course, in the United Kingdom. But in 1916, the war came and that was abandoned. And the Irish nationalists thought that perhaps it was never going to be revived. And so in 1916, a very gallant group of Irish men uh, staged, and some women too, I might say, staged an uprising in Dublin. And that marked the beginning, really, of an Irish revolution that went on for half a dozen years until Ireland became a republic. Now, that will be celebrated next year here in Australia because about one quarter of Australians were of Irish descent and many quite recent immigrants. And the violent action of the British government at the time to suppress the rebels aroused great anxiety and great anger here. Later in the year, in September, just two years after the war, public opinion in here was moving from relatively little opposition to a, a, a very great anxiety about the death roll, about uh, all of those factors associated with the war, uh, and led to a conflict in the Labour Party. Hughes, the Labour Prime Minister, who'd come to power after Fisher's ill health and retirement in the year before. Hughes was a passionate imperialist. He was a warmonger of the most virulent kind, and he was a liar and a cheat. You could hardly have thought of a worse man to be Prime Minister. And a good book I might read, recommend any listener to read is Professor Donald Horne's wonderful book, In Search of Billy Hughes, in which he portrays Hughes in all his vileness, I think is the word. Now, Hughes was the Labour Prime Minister, but he came back from Britain after a visit, determined to impose conscription for all men under the age of 45. Now, this, this is in a little country with a population of 5 million. The Labour movement split. Hughes and a handful of his ministers and a few supporters, and some very important supporters, like the Premier of New South Wales, went in favour of conscription anything to ensure a British victory on the Western Front. But public opinion had moved the other way. <clears throat> and the conscription referendum which followed brought down the Labour government, of course. It wasn't much of a government by this time because Hughes and others were supporting the war. But the rank and file of the Labour movement and the trades unions large sections of the Catholic Church, including Dr. Mannix, the Archbishop of Melbourne, and a whole um, collection of people on the left, who many of them had been opposed to the war from the beginning, uh, now defeated the referendum, which Hughes was forced to hold, and the Labour government collapsed in the aftermath of that, a few days after that. Uh, so 1916 is an important year, and of course it ends the winter of 1916, early 1917 in uh, Europe, sees the anti-war movements in Europe take off, and nowhere did they take off with such violence and such wide support as in Russia, and through the winter of that year, Russia settled in, as most of Europe did, into something like near famine because if you take millions of men out of the workforce, especially in farming, 
food production falls. And um, a Russian politician, a conservative, called Dernavo had predicted in the year before the First World War, in 1913, that Russia would not be able to sustain a great conflict with Germany, uh, that the loss of life, the loss of industry would ruin the Russian economy, and out of that would come famine, uh, social crisis, and eventually revolution. Dernavo was absolutely right, but the Tsar and the stupid people around him ignored all of that. And when the war began in August 1914, oddly enough, after a, a famously wonderful summer in Europe, in Europe, summers that are hot are always seen as wonderful. And it was a record summer. And few people saw the danger of war, even after the assassination at Sarajevo. And the six weeks between the assassination at Sarajevo for which the Serbs and the Serbian government was overwhelmingly guilty. It had been planned by a terrorist group with the backing of the Serbian government. But nevertheless, the Tsar and the Russians supported Serbia on all matters. And by the July assassination, it was followed by a crisis through August, and at the first week of, of August, the um, war began in Europe. Uh, and every national leader made fatal errors. A very good book I could recommend again on the topic is a recent British publication by the professor of history at Cambridge University called The Sleepwalkers. And none of the leaders saw the danger to themselves in a funny way and their regimes that the war would bring. And, of course, in 1917, which we'll celebrate 18 months from now, the first of the two Russian revolutions occurred in that year. And by October, the collapse of Russian society had created the situation where the Bolsheviks under Lenin, later called the communists, of course, the Bolsheviks, it's a Russian word meaning majority, seized power and proclaimed the Soviet Union, a new kind of society, they said. Uh, no one in 1914 could have seen any of this. And yet, of course, in Australia, this also had a profound effect. There were some Russian immigrants here, mostly young men who'd come from escaping from the Tsar's prison camps in Siberia and making their way through China, generally, to Brisbane. It seems an unlikely place for a... Um, a community of young men, uh, many of whom were quite well educated. And uh, again, a book I would recommend if you're doing some reading on this is a wonderful novel by Thomas Keneally, whom we all know, and it's called The People's Train. And it's about one of these, uh, a very brilliant young man, a Russian immigrant who came to Brisbane before the First World War and was a major figure in Brisbane left-wing politics. He's based on a true character who later went back to Russia in 1917 and <clears throat> became a kind of junior minister in Lenin's government and was involved in the early years of the revolution. So I'd recommend The People's Train as a marvellous bit of reading. It's been out a couple of years. The paperback is probably still in the bookshops. I got a copy uh, a while ago for one of my granddaughters. So it's still around, and um, uh, you'll certainly find it in the library in the Thomas Keneally section. The People's Train, it's called. 
Now, all of these events convulsed Australia, and you have to ask yourself, what did Australia look like before these events? Well, it was in many cases one of the richest countries in the world, as we have always been, because of our generally our vast mineral resources. We're seeing one of the busts at the moment that always follows these booms. The end of the 19th century, that is in the 1890s, Melbourne was swept by a Great Depression that ended 40 years of a remarkable development that had begun with the gold rushes at Ballarat and Bendigo and other places in, 19, in the 1850s. Melbourne had had 40 years of boom based on gold. But in the 1890s, 12 Melbourne banks collapsed and Victoria was plunged into the first Great Depression in Australian history. It affected the other states too. Although Western Australia was exempt extraordinarily because at just that time the great gold discoveries at Kalgoorlie had created a great deal of work, the, the building of the railway to Kalgoorlie, the building of the water supply <coughs> where water was pumped hundred, six, seven hundred miles from the coast to Kalgoorlie. Uh, all of that created a boom in Western Australia, similar to the one they've just had, but um, uh, it was in marked contrast to what was happening in Melbourne and the other states which were drawn into the Melbourne Depression, much to their anger. While this was happening, uh, there had come in the 1890s the movement for federation, which took the form of a series of conventions and the drafting of a constitution uh, and finally a series of referendums. Australia is unusual in that sense that our modern state was actually created by a kind of peaceful democratic process. This isn't the case in many countries. You could look at a country like India where a long bitter struggle took place before the British were finally driven out and the same is true of Indonesia, of Vietnam. Many European countries uh, have had that experience and um, Australia was unique in a way, and certainly in this part of the world. So in 1900, uh, well really January 1901, uh, the constitution was drafted and finalised and Australia became a federated single nation on the 1st of January. Interestingly, in the constitution, the British had allowed for a Governor-General appointed by the Queen, which we still have. But in those days, the British government, we know from secret correspondence released much later, thought that role of Governor-General would be crucially important. He would be an Englishman, a peer, one of the British establishment, and at the behest of the British government, uh, there to keep an eye on what the colonial governments of Australia really got up to. If anything was done by the new Australian Parliament that um, ran counter to British wishes, well then he would be there to put an end to that. But that never really worked out because with the passage of time the Governors General became less and less important uh, and until 1930 they were always POMs, they were always English aristocrats. But a Labour government in 1930 uh, made a, a, a judge, Isaac Isaacs, a famous lawyer and judge, the first Australian-born Governor-General, to great anger in London. But 
that really marked the end of that part of British rule in this country. Quite recent when you think of it. Your parents and mine would have lived through as very young people through that period of, of the Depression. So it was only about then that Australia became, in a sense, independent of London. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. Jan Butler with you for my last program for 2015 and you are listening to historian and author Brian McKinlay. Now, from 1900 to 1914, Australia was recovering from the depression of the 90s. There was a fairly strong inflow of European, mostly British, immigrants and a great deal of government expenditure on infrastructure like the building of the railway from Adelaide, or Port Augusta actually, to Kalgoorlie, and um, and the transcontinental railway wasn't finished till 1917. But that period between 1900 and 1914, uh, and the outbreak of the war, was interesting for several ways. Firstly, it saw the rise of the trade union movement, which had been strong before the Depression, but has been disastrously weakened in the Depression of the 90s. Uh, The rise again of the trade unions and correspondingly of the Labor Party, which won a dozen seats in the new federal parliament of 75 members in the House, um, but Labor was on the rise at each election after 1901 along with uh, a strengthening of the trade union movement and <clears throat> quite strong demands from them for all sorts of social reforms, including pensions, family benefits, things that we take for granted now but weren't in the time, workers' compensation legislation. That also was part of the rise of Labor parties in the state parliaments, the first majority Labor government in New South Wales came to power in 1911 uh, and there'd been minority Labor governments in Victoria and South Australia briefly and one in uh, in the same year, 1911, in Western Australia. So the rise of the Labor movement uh, pushed aside the old political party. Australia, like Canada, which is still so inclined today, had a Conservative Party, which was generally in favour of free trade and centred in Sydney. Oddly enough, all the recent Prime Ministers from Sydney, people like John Howard and uh, others, Abbott and the rest, and, and when you think of it, most of the Liberal Prime Ministers since Malcolm Fraser have been Sydney-oriented, took up that theme of free trade, which is interesting historically. Sydney was never a city with much industry in colonial times. It was a seaport and a a market town and all of that. But industries were smaller, whereas Melbourne, on the other hand, became, in the after the gold rush, the major manufacturing centre. And in Melbourne, the idea of protection of Australian industries, taken up vigorously by the Age newspaper, and liberal politicians like Deakin won out in the end. And Deakin also was quite progressive in his views about working conditions. Uh, Victoria led the way in setting up an arbitration commission, uh, recognising unions. Uh, And under Deakin, Victoria... And Deakin was a very small-l liberal politician, became quite different to many of the other states. 
so at the beginning of federation uh, the Victorian ideas tend to dominate and Deakin was one of the senior politicians of the time in Canberra which was reached by the way always by the politicians of the day by relatively long train journeys air travel hadn't come <coughs> and even for Victorians it was a long overnight journey and uh, from the other states days of travel so Canberra, the Parliament sat in Canberra for uh, sort of short, intensive periods of work. Uh, now, from 1901, Australia embarked on a fairly long-term boom that brought prosperity. Wages in Australia were much higher than Britain, uh, as high as the United States and higher than in most European countries. It led to a French politician who came here and wrote about Australia using the term the working man's paradise. Now, by our standards, that was a bit of hyperbole, but certainly judged against many other countries. And, and with the influence of the Labor Party and the trade unions, Australian working people had made great gains. There was work, workers' compensation, there was um, pensions for the elderly, there was a family bonus which came with the Fisher government in 1910, and these gains were, in, in a way, short term. The idea, for instance, of having Saturday afternoon off, which seems uh, relatively strange to us, when people worked a five and a half day week, was another achievement of the unions. Uh, and, and in fact, the Shop Assistance Union campaigned for the closure of department stores in Melbourne at midday on Saturday. And so the workers had Saturday afternoon free, which led to the practice of playing football and other sporting games on uh, Saturday afternoon. Whereas in many European countries, people worked a six-day week and played football and still do on Sunday. Now, the years before the war saw these social advances. Well, one of the interesting things was right at the beginning of Federation, the first legislation, what would you think it would be? The first act of the House of Representatives was to in, in put in law the White Australia policy and begin to repatriate people called Kanakas who had been brought illegally to work in the Queensland sugar plantations. Now, in North Queensland, the greater landowners would have been happy to see a separate Queensland, North Queensland state, which seems reasonable, but they wanted something like the American South, where black labourers from the Pacific could be brought in to work for very low wages, if at all, in the sugar plantations. Andrew Fisher and the Labour Party opposed that, just as they opposed Asian immigration, and while to our view that may seem a pretty racist view, uh, you have to remember that the union movement was terribly worried about employers bringing in Asians and Pacific Islanders and paying them much less than the award rates, which the unions had gained after bitter struggle. And the Queensland example turned people like um, Fisher towards the idea of only white European immigrants and the first legislation of the new parliament was to pass what became known as the White Australia policy. And subsequently that was added to over the years. But that's an interesting fact. Now, as I mentioned, the Labor Party was on the rise. There were two minority short-lived Labor governments in the early years of Federation. 
which came to power because of the differences of opinion between the two wings of conservative thought. And these two governments were not very significant, except that in 1908, Andrew Fisher held office for about eight months, which meant that the, the top Labor politician had the experience of government, of the actual running of day-to-day ministerial posts. And there was an argument which brought his government, his minority government down in the House of Representatives between Labor and the two Conservative parties, Liberal and Conservative, if I can use that word, over the Australian, the idea of an Australian fleet. You wonder where this idea of an Australian fleet came from. Well, of course, in the early days, Sydney and Melbourne, less so, had been the centre of British naval operations. After all, the British were the greatest of all the imperial powers uh, and had built their power on the use of ships. You know, the famous song, Britannia rules the waves, rule Britannia. And Sydney was a perfect base for all of these operations. But the British had begun to withdraw in the late 19th century, partly because of the uh, fact that Britain was falling into a conflict in Europe with powers like Germany, and the idea of keeping the British fleet in the North Sea intact uh, was a very persuasive one, and to a degree the British had begun to lose interest in Australia. One other significant event, which we tend to forget about, was that in 1905, just as the Russians were completing one of the great engineering achievements of history, and that was the building of the Trans-Siberian Railway to link Siberia and the Pacific coast of Russia with the Pacific Ocean, the Japanese, who feared this and had already occupied, invaded and occupied, and did for 50 years occupy Korea, and were moving towards conflicts with China, which of course did come in the 1930s. The Japanese attacked the Russians before the Russians could make use of the railway for troop movement, and to everyone's astonishment, the Japanese won a series of land and sea battles against Tsarist Russia. It was one of the catastrophic events in Russia that began the processes of revolution. And in 1905, late in the year, there was a revolution in Russia which succeeded and forced the Tsar to make all sorts of concessions, most of which he reneged on later. But the Japanese suddenly had defeated a major European power. And the effect in Australia was profound. Everyone, right or left, suddenly saw the Japanese Navy as a major force Uh, One politician spoke of the great dread of Australians of Japan, with good reason. Japan was a militaristic country, and now it dominated the Pacific, along with the United States. So in 1906, Deakin, then Prime Minister, invited the American Navy on a world cruise. The cruise of the Great White Fleet, it was called, not racist white, but racist, but white in the fact that the battleships were painted not grey, but white. And the American fleet made a world tour as a first sign of the emergence of American power in a way. And Deakin was delighted to have them come to Australia. The British weren't, by the way, and Deakin had to secretly contact the White House to get them to come here. This wasn't originally on their schedule. But they did, and 
It is estimated that when they arrived in Sydney, a million people crowded the harbour to see them. And everybody saw American naval power as its guarantee against Japan. Now, you might see that as the first moment of an Australian-American alliance. And, of course, this was to be brutally disrupted 40 years later when the Japanese attacked and destroyed a part of the American fleet at Pearl Harbor. So these are long historical trends. But the Great White Fleet led to a demand that there be an Australian fleet. Now, the Conservatives, predictably, took the view that we should do what Britain wants and give the British money to build warships which they would train Australians to use but keep them in Britain until we needed them. <coughs> Labor, to its credit, rejected that. And uh, Fisher's government <coughs> was defeated in Parliament in 1908 on that issue. But it became an issue at the federal elections in 1910 when, to everyone's astonishment, Fisher won a landslide victory in both Senate and House and formed the first Labor government with a majority. Now, this was a unique event. Nowhere else in the world had a Labor Party won power at the national level, or even local level. Fisher later went to Britain. He was a Scotsman, of course. He went to Britain for a Prime Minister's conference and was something of a, of a celebrity because of this event. Um, the Labor government then did go ahead with building an Australian fleet, which uh, eventually was based in Sydney, but originally the Naval College was based in Geelong at a place called Oz House. And um, that was one of the Labor government's achievements, really, as well as beginning the building of Canberra uh, and also the building of the Transcontinental Railway. So Fisher's government was um, very much into infrastructure, defence and social security. It brought in what was called the baby bonus, five pounds, a lot of money in those days, about two weeks' wages for an average man, five pound, and Fisher insisted on paying the money, uh, not as people thought to the father of the child, but to the mother. And this aroused shock horror from conservatives. Uh, but women, whether they were married to their husbands or not, were to get the bonus. This was quite a progressive move by Fisher. At the same time, in 1901, Melbourne had become the capital of Australia until Canberra was constructed, and that wasn't until 1927. So virtually for a quarter of a century, Melbourne was the capital. Everything happened here. The Parliament met here. The Victorian Parliament moved out of that beautiful building at the top of Burke Street and sat in the Exhibition Building, where the first federal parliament actually met. The Governor-General who came to Melbourne, or was set up here, and uh, he lived in Government House, which is the governor's residence over on the other side of the Yarra. Uh, and the Victorian governor moved into a big house called Stonington out in Ca uh, Camberwell. Now, Melbourne has then become the national capital. And there's a good book on this I might recommend by a Melbourne woman called Christine Otto, O-T-T-O. And it's just called Capital. Have a look in your library if you haven't got a copy. Uh, you'll find it perhaps in the second-hand bookshops. I read it about 10 years ago, so I doubt that it's still in print. But it's called Capital, and it looks at Melbourne because Melbourne, as capital, became the place every important visitor went to. And it had produced the most famous Australian person of the age. And surprisingly, that's not one of the male politicians. It's a woman, Nellie Melba, who 
took the name of the city. Her name was Mitchell, but she was told in Paris that it was best to have an Italian-sounding name, and she took the name Melba, Madame Melba, uh, as she became the greatest opera star of the age. Uh, and she returned to Europe, uh, to Melbourne, up to 20 years in Europe at the turn of the century and came here from time to time. But, of course, her life was one of travel to sing in Europe and North America. And uh, she built a place called Coombe Cottage, a lovely place with a beautiful garden up at uh, Coldstream, which is now open to the public and worth a visit. Melba was the greatest Australian artist of all time, in a sense, and uh, she came back renowned in Europe and uh, uh, it was unusual that she could probably even now be considered the greatest most famous Australian woman all these events had made Australia a very egalitarian prosperous country and in 1913 Fisher's government was defeated at the elections by one seat a year later, the poll, the Conservative government that came to power couldn't uh, organise itself and went to a double dissolution in 1914. And when the war came in Europe, Australia was in the middle of an election campaign and nobody had foreseen the war. Six weeks earlier, most people wouldn't have been able to find Sarajevo on a map. Andrew Fisher, the Labour leader and soon to be Prime Minister again, spoke of supporting the mother country, and this is an extraordinary phrase for a Labor Prime Minister, to the last man and the last shilling. And Hughes, who later became Prime Minister when Fisher's health suddenly deteriorated, he had an early onset of Alzheimer's, apparently, Hughes took this up, and that the idea that Australia would commit itself unlimited support to the war in Europe... And when the war in Europe came in August, most Australians were just aghast. But there was a great surge of patriotism based on supporting the mother country, as it was called. Lots of young men, thinking it an, an adventure that they were going to, enlisted all across the country. And that brings me to the end of my comments about Gallipoli and what was to follow. And perhaps next year we'll look at that in more detail. Well, thanks, Brian, for all of that and all that you've done through the year. Perhaps we could finish with you just giving the names of those books again with the authors. I suggested a number of books. I suggested you try and find Christine Otto's book called Capital. You, you might look for a documentary history of the labour movement, which your library probably has. It's a book I wrote some years ago and which has a, uh, also a three-volume edition and it looks at the conscription referendums and the conflict of the time. The third book is Thomas Keneally's The People's Train, and it looks at the Russian left-wing rebels who came to Brisbane before the war, but who took a great part in the anti-war uh, events in Brisbane during the First World War, and later uh, at least one of them went back to Russia to take part in the revolution. We'll talk again next year, Brian. And we certainly will. That was historian and author Brian McKinlay. And you're listening to 3CR, where the time now is 4.46. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. 
I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band Stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. Radio Adelaide, Australia's longest-running community radio station, is calling upon supporters to speak out before it's too late. The University of Adelaide sold Radio Adelaide's home on North Terrace to help fund its new medical school. A decision and funds commitment was expected in November, but instead the university has opened another brief consultation period that pushes a decision closer to Christmas. The station community is concerned that this is a precursor to shutting the station down. Show your support for a station that supports our diverse community and head to www.saveradioadelaide.org to sign the petition. 3CR in solidarity with Radio Adelaide. Here's a song for the dreamer Late night drunken schemes Full of bruise in the busted ass flat Get the lowdown on the know-how, the food know-how. Victorian households are throwing away over $2,000 a year in wasted food. That's just not smart. You can be smarter than the average Victorian by joining Food Know How and learn simple steps to reduce your food waste, save money and protect the environment. This program is free to residents of Yarra, Moreland, Darabin, Maribyrnong or Whittlesea. Visit foodknowhow.org.au. Funding for the project provided by Victorian Government's Metropolitan Local Government Waste and Resource Recovery Fund. The Food Know How program is a 3CR supporter. Earlier this morning I spoke with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan who was working in Sydney and we started by talking about the new Prime Minister in Australia and what that might mean for the Pacific countries. Well, there's both continuity and change between the Abbott and Turnbull governments in terms of what it means for neighbouring Pacific Island countries. The obvious thing to remember, of course, is that uh, in spite of the change of Prime Minister, most of the people who brought us uh, the worst policies of the Abbott government are still in place. So uh, a lot of policies really haven't changed and the key areas around defence and foreign policy are pretty much the same. Having said that, um, the tone has changed fundamentally. In September this year, Tony Abbott uh, attended the Pacific Islands Forum, the main uh, intergovernmental agency that links Australia, New Zealand and the independent island states, and got indeed a hostile reception to the climate policies that the Abbott government have been promoting, as we've talked about on this program before. Tony Abbott's cutbacks to the aid program, 
cuts to uh, climate financing uh, with the initial refusal in 2013 to fund the Green Climate Fund, this new global mechanism for climate financing. You know, the engagement with Fiji, which has basically let the military off the hook for any uh, human rights violations. Those sort of problems caused a lot of grief. And therefore, Turnbull has, uh, just by changing the tone, as in Australian domestic policy, won a lot of uh, initial support. The Turnbull government has also appointed for the first time a Minister for International Development Pacific Island Affairs. Under the Rudd and Gillard governments, Richard Miles served a similar sort of role as Parliamentary Secretary for the Pacific and was very active in uh, you know, doing a lot of legwork around the Pacific to represent Australia while uh, successive Labor foreign ministers were off saving the world elsewhere. And we see the current appointee, Queenslander Stephen Chobo, playing that same role. Uh, just last week, uh, Chobo led a parliamentary delegation to uh, four Pacific countries, Solomons, Fiji, Tonga and uh, Samoa, to highlight Australia's commitment to the region. He'll sort of act as Julie Bishop's eyes and ears in the Pacific uh, to expand Australia's engagement with uh, neighbouring Pacific countries. What about the, the, the aid for climate change adaptation? That's going to come out of the aid budget. Yeah, well, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors with the announcements uh, made by Prime Minister Turnbull when he was in Paris for the global climate negotiations. Turnbull announced that there would be a billion dollars for um, climate mitigation and adaptation, so reducing greenhouse gas emissions and uh, adapting to the adverse effects of climate change for the Pacific and uh, Asia-Pacific region. But that billion dollars needs to be unpacked a bit. The headline looks great, but it's really spinning uh, a, a really uh, unchanged position compared to what happened in the uh, period of the Rudd and Gillard governments. Firstly, of the billion dollars, 200 million of it, 20% of it, was announced last year at the Lima climate negotiations. Um, that's 200 million over four years going to the Green Climate Fund. This is a global institution that's been created out of the, the climate negotiations to fund mitigation and adaptation uh, issues within developing countries. And so, um, you know, re-announcing stuff that was already announced in December 2014, in December 2015, one might say is cheating a bit. Secondly, as you've mentioned, all of this climate financing is drawn from the aid budget. And that's the case in the previous Labor governments that um, under uh, Rudd and Gillard, Australians overseas finance uh, for climate adaptation and some was all drawn out of the aid budget. Now that's a, a, a problem because the G77 plus China group, the developing countries of the world, have long been saying that any climate financing has to be new and additional. That's the jargon that's used. Obviously, they don't simply want money taken for long-term programs in health and education and uh, social infrastructure and uh, agriculture and so on, just rebadged as climate action. They want new and additional money, and we're not seeing that. So the billion-dollar pledge doesn't add anything new and additional. Stephen Chobo has confirmed that the money will come straight out of the aid budget. The other part of the picture, of course, is that the Abbott government decimated the aid budget. Under the Rudd and Gillard governments, there was a commitment to try and expand Australia's aid program towards the internationally recognised target of 0.7% of GDP by 
of gross national income. In fact, we weren't going for 0.7, we were going for 0.5. So we're way behind what other countries like Norway and Denmark and Sweden have already achieved. But over years, the aid budget was supposed to grow from $4 billion to about $8 billion, a significant increase, really, in fact, a doubling of the aid budget over time. But that goal started to spin out over many years. Labor ditched it by uh, reallocating funds to the refugee processing within Australia. $375 million came out of the aid budget to process refugees in Australia. The date for achieving that 0.5 target was put back by the Gillard government under Treasurer Wayne Swan and so on. What we've seen, though, under Abbott is a massive cutback to planned expansion of the budget. And uh, by the time of the end of the Labor Party, it had got up to about $5 billion Australian dollars, roughly. Abbott slashed in last year's budget 20% of that total. So a billion dollars, roughly, was taken out of the aid budget. Under the first two Abbott period, uh, two Abbott budgets, the proposal was that $11.7 billion would be taken out of the aid budget over, um, uh, sorry, 11.3 plus the labour money would be taken out over forward estimates. That's a huge whack, a huge setback in Australia's overseas aid program. There's a whole debate about how effectively aid is used, but just in the, in the, in the quantum, it's, it's, a, it's a shocking setback. You know, Australia has gone from 0.36% of gross national income to 0.22. It's the lowest it's ever been. And to lose 20% of the aid budget in just one year, you've seen the cancellation of really fundamental grassroots development initiatives all around Africa and the Asia region and the Pacific's facing the same problem. I think with Scott Morrison's MAIFO, the Mid-Year Economic Financial Outlook, and the budget next year, which is going to be an election year budget, you know, there's going to be a focus on domestic policies, you know, with the low iron ore prices and the budget uh, pressures. They're going to focus money on Australians rather than foreigners. And so we're not going to see an expansion of the aid budget. That's a fundamental problem for the Pacific. Billion-dollar pledge made in Paris really brings us back to the averages that we saw under Rudd and Gillard, about $200 million a year of public funding. Nick, can you give some examples in the Pacific of, of what it means for those programs to be cut? By and large, the aid cuts last year focused on Africa and Southeast Asia. So the cuts to Africa meant about 70%, massive cuts. We've seen programs shut down. In Asia, on average, it was 40%. The one country in Southeast Asia that didn't get cut was Cambodia. Surprise, surprise, because we tried to bribe the Cambodians to take asylum seekers uh, and refugees from Nauru. So far, four or five people have gone from Nauru to Cambodia, and we offered the Cambodians over $50 million. So it's a pretty expensive way of resettling people who've been found to be refugees from Nauru. The Pacific relatively didn't get a lot of cuts last year, but the cuts are coming this year. 5% of the aid budget to Papua New Guinea was cut. About $60 million, all told, went from regional programs. And these are programs like the South Pacific Regional Environment Program, which runs environment work, adaptation work on the ground in the Pacific. The budget cuts have, have meant some, some significant uh, delays in programs as much as uh, cuts. One example I could give you in Vanuatu, Australia's aid program funded a consortium of local and international NGOs in Vanuatu who were working 
on climate resilience, climate adaptation, real grassroots things that in about nine different communities across four provinces, working on issues like improving agriculture for women, uh, trialling uh, solar technologies to help with preserving food, doing community vulnerability mapping, uh, agricultural pr programs for the youth, really important things to allow people to improve their livelihoods at a time that, you know, there's a massive El Nino drought affecting agriculture in Vanuatu, affecting water supply in Vanuatu. That was a three-year program for 2012 to 2015. It only cost $2 million. Sounds like a lot of money for some people, but spread over, you know, a number of provinces uh, affecting, you know, hundreds of people living in small rural communities. It was money well spent, and the evaluations of the program said it was a real success. When that began under the Gillard government, however, when the Labor government uh, ended and the funding cuts started to come in through AusAid, there was no commitment to a second phase of the program. People thought that once it was up and running, there would be ongoing funding from Australia. That wasn't the case, and no second phase funding was available. The project ran down and finished in February 2015, uh, earlier this year. The local Nivanuatu workers had been involved and hired to work on a lot of these programs, were laid off or re-diverted to other activities and so on. Of course, as we know, a month later after the program finished in March 2015, Cyclone Pam hit Vanuatu, a devastating cyclone that caused uh, you know, 80% damage to housing in southern islands like Tana and uh, enormous devastation to the capital, set back uh, economic growth for a number of years and really hit the poorest rural communities hardest. And Julie Bishop turned around and gave $5 million to the very NGOs that their long-term adaptation work had been wrapped up. This is the sort of stop-start thing that these budget cuts mean. It's not just the raw figures. It's the programs that start building community resilience, that start providing activity on the ground, get turned on and off. Um, and that disrupts all the practical things that need to be done. Because a lot of social change, a lot of development change doesn't happen in the space of a two or three year project. It takes a lot longer. And uh, this is one of the problems. The Pacific governments, as well as calling for uh, adequate funding from uh, both the aid program and climate financing, are also calling for predictable and sustainable funding so that there's a guarantee locked in and we've seen this demand in Paris. We're calling on developed countries to put $100 billion a year, US, every year by 2020 in both public and private funds. That's the, the target that's been reaffirmed with the new Paris Agreement. There won't be a review, however, of that target for another decade until 2025. And yet the challenges still remain, not just for vulnerable states in the Pacific, but for developing countries all around the world. I'd imagine that New Zealand would be giving aid to the Pacific nations as well as Australia. Have they cut their aid like we have? Yeah, what we've seen is, is a similar sort of pattern amongst the Anglosphere, where Canada, New Zealand and Australia have all followed a similar path. Key elements in the change to, to development assistance, as it's called, to the aid program, is that they've merged independent statutory bodies into the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So NZAID in New Zealand is now part of MFAT, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, just as AusAid, Australia's uh, Agency for International Development, was merged into DFAT, 
uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Similar thing happened in Canada. And during the merger of that, you've seen the loss of a lot of experience where people who worked specifically on development stuff have now been transferred over to become diplomats. And some of them, you know, have, have taken redundancy or been sacked. And so you've seen a loss of development knowledge. And um, there's some good synergies from, from bringing things together. Um, but the basic idea of aligning, you know, aid programming with broader foreign affairs objectives has the tendency to undercut a focus on, you know, addressing poverty, which is, you know, one of the core functions of, of, of the aid program. And so we've seen aid more and more serving Australian interests. That's always been the case. People in the Pacific joke about boomerang aid all the time. The money gets thrown out by Australia and it comes back uh, to benefit Australian institutions, Australian corporations and so on. And we see a lot of the aid program really structurally benefiting Australian industry. But uh, uh, the benefits are more and more there. And we've seen under successive governments, both Labor and Liberal, a focus on directing aid to the private sector and uh, areas such as aid for trade, which is using the aid program to promote trade interests and the integration of uh, Pacific Island countries further into uh, regional trade markets. That's particularly through uh, the trade agreement called PESA Plus, which is uh, due to be finalised by the middle of next year. How much influence is China in the Pacific now to take up the slack that the Anglo countries are letting go? Significant, but it's not just China. Uh, there are a whole range of players from uh, uh, Asia, um, from Indonesia, Korea, India, Taiwan, as well as China. The Chinese influence has certainly grown, particularly with uh, Fiji, but also in other countries. China has major investments in Papua New Guinea in areas like mining, tourism, uh, uh, aquaculture and so on. And that trend is growing. So China is uh, having a, a growing influence in the region. That was particularly the case in Fiji when Fiji was suspended from the Pacific Islands Forum um, after Fiji uh, abrogated, after the Bainimarama regime abrogated Fiji's constitution in 2009. Fiji was isolated through travel bans and so on. Um, now, during that period, over the five years or so after that, until elections were held in September 2014, Fiji looked to other partners. And those partners looked back. Um, after the G20 meeting in November uh, 2014, just last year, uh, both the, the Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping and uh, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi both travelled to Fiji after they'd been meeting in Brisbane with uh, uh, Tony Abbott at the G20. And so you see... Um, uh, that uh, a whole range of so-called non-traditional players are challenging for influence against the traditional players, which is Australia, New Zealand, and also, of course, the United States and France, who still maintain colonies within the Pacific Islands. A final interview for 2015 for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and you are listening to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. No moves at all to get rid of the US and France out of that area? Well, there are still significant self-determination struggles, as we've talked about on, on, on your program many times. Particularly New Caledonia is moving towards a, a referendum on self-determination probably in the second half of 2018. It has to be held before the end of 2018, and I doubt that it'll be any earlier, so I think we're going to see in late 2018 a referendum on New Caledonia's political status. 
and that's significant because New Caledonia uh, has significant mineral resources. Uh, um, over 20% of the world's reserves of nickel, a crucial strategic metal, uh, are in the mountain chain uh, on the main island of Grand Terre. And so um, you'll see New Caledonia, uh, this issue coming to the fore. Of course, for the Canucks, uh, still colonised by France, Australia's role is becoming more and more uh, contested. Um, Australia has, um, beyond the euphoria of Paris, where people are congratulating the Hollande government for bringing home the bacon with a, a new climate deal, um, we see increase, increasing strategic partnership between Australia and France. That's particularly in the area of arms sales. We're a major purchaser of French armaments through companies like Thales, uh, which has now got the contract to build the Bushmasters, a billion-dollar contract uh, for the factory in Bendigo and, and elsewhere that will be constructing these uh, armoured vehicles. Um, Thales, uh, through its sonar arrays and other submarine guidance systems, uh, is involved uh, in the bid for um, Australia's submarine program, a multi-billion dollar operation, and the French government-controlled uh, naval shipyards, DCSN, is uh, uh, one of the three major contenders to build Australia's submarines. So you can see people in the French Francophone Pacific, in New Caledonia and Tahiti, are worried that Australia will not back their move to uh, uh, sovereignty and self-determination while they uh, are in such a strategic embrace with uh, France, uh, not just on armaments but on other issues, particularly on trade, on counter-terrorism, on operations in Afghanistan through NATO, uh, the war in Syria against uh, Daesh and, and so on. So these are, are really um, tough times for the, uh, the independence movements who see that France is improving its regional and global relations um, and Australia and New Zealand are, are very much part of that. Going back to the Paris conference just once more, Nick, you say that Hollande's been congratulated for bringing home the bacon. What's the quality of the bacon? Well, uh, you know how they gave a warning about how too much um, meat can give you cancer? That's the quality of the bacon. I think uh, it's really important to recognise that the uh, targets and pledges made to reduce emissions are nowhere near enough to... Uh, produce the change that we need to see to reduce temperatures to a safe climate level. The ambition is very low, not just from Australia, but internationally. And the INDCs, as they're called, the internationally, the uh, intended national targets, are setting us on a path. Estimates range from official estimates of 2.7 degrees warming from the International Energy Agency to some scientists suggest 3.4 degrees or more. So that's a death sentence for vulnerable nations. It will cause enormous devastation to the biosphere, to livelihoods, to economies. So given that those targets are not legally binding, they're very much just domestically accepted, there's going to be ongoing battle for the change that's needed to get us moving towards a safe climate. One of the things that's come out of Paris is a certain momentum, however. Um, after many years, AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States, together with a range of scientists, have been saying that the two-degree warming target that was set as a sort of guardrail in Copenhagen that's ended popular consciousness was not a safe climate target. That two degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels was in fact just the barrier between dangerous and very dangerous impacts. 
And so one of the, I think, medium-term successes is the popularisation of the notion of moving well below not just 2 degrees but 1.5 degrees. And small island states have been arguing this for 20 years that uh, there needs to be, in fact, lower temperatures either than that. The 350.org, the very name of the NGO organisation, is suggesting we don't need to be where we are, 400 parts per million of carbon emissions equivalent uh, uh, at the moment, but we need to be going backwards to, to draw down carbon from the atmosphere. And so um, I think we're, we're going to look back at Paris. The one achievement is that it started to popularise the notion that two degrees is not a scientific measure of safe climate. It's in fact a political agreement and that we need much stronger targets and the aspiration to move well below 1.5 is symbolised by that. And for the Pacific who fought for that for a long time, that aspiration is there. However, the mechanisms that have been created by the Paris Agreement don't actually set a path to that. There'll be reviews in five years' time, but the sort of targets that have been put forward by Australia and New Zealand are very low and, as I say, set us on the path to, to nearly three degrees of warming, which is a disaster, not just for low-lying atoll nations, but indeed for everyone, uh, including people in Australia. So there's going to be a battle, and there's going to be a battle to uh, have more urgent and faster emissions reductions, to see new technologies introduced, and to have the developed world help finance that transition towards new renewable energy systems and towards dealing with the adverse impacts of climate change that are already locked into the ecosphere. One significant defeat for the Pacific Islands at the Paris Climate Talks, and not just for the Pacific, but for other least developed countries and small island states in the Caribbean, the African sub-Saharan countries and so on, was the refusal of OECD countries, led by Australia and the United States, to take any responsibility for loss and damage. Uh, that's the technical term used during these climate negotiations to talk about the adverse effects that are already locked in to uh, the environment from existing industrial uh, emissions that can't be addressed through adaptation. Um, so you think of something like ocean acidification where the ocean's uh, acidity is changing, which has enormous impacts on, on reef ecologies, can affect the production of shellfish, of shells, of other vital parts of the, the, the biodiversity that makes up the, the reef ecologies that are so important for everything from Pacific tourism to uh, nutrition and, and, and beyond. And so, you know, one of the, one of the real setbacks in the, um, the Paris talks was that uh, although they're going to keep reviewing the mechanism created a few years ago in Poland for loss and damage, there's a specific clause in the Paris Agreement that says there will be no liability or compensation for past effects. And the United States particularly, but Australia certainly backed this position, and as did other developed countries. They're happy to talk about you know, mitigation and adaptation, but they're not happy to talk about the existing damage caused. And we see with uh, the intensity of cyclones like Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, like um, uh, Cyclone Pam in Vanuatu, that the damage caused by extreme weather events, you can't adapt to it. Uh, you can prepare for it, you can mitigate it, but you can't ultimately stop that sort of damage. And so the insurance costs of rebuilding towns like Port Vila, not just once in 100 years, 
but maybe once in every five or ten years, is going to be a serious, serious challenge for a developing country. And so we've seen, that I think, quite a significant setback that the loss and damage uh, uh, area is, is, is being put back. And this, as I say, at a time that we're not going to review the commitment to public and private financing for, for climate adaptation through the Green Climate Fund and other mechanisms until 2025, so a decade away. And that means that, you know, for the cost of, of rebuilding for something like Cyclone Pam in Vanuatu is going to be borne by uh, other taxpayers. And the drought in PNG and the desperate lack of food in that country, is that a one-off for PNG or are other countries affected as well? No, look, we've seen El Ninos, El Nino, uh, the El Nino phenomenon uh, with the shifting uh, temperatures across the, the Pacific and the changes in rainfall patterns uh, are caused by the alternating El Nino southern oscillation and the La Nina phenomena, the contrasting one, have go back uh, well before the Industrial Revolution. In fact, uh, in, the, in the 19th century, there was a massive El Nino in about 1876 that caused enormous, enormous tragedy right across from, from South America, massive drought in Brazil, right through to India, where more than a million people died uh, during uh, the, the massive drought in India, in Bengal particularly, in, in the 18, mid-1870s. Um, in our own region, that drought was hit hard in Australia. In New Caledonia, there was terrible drought, and uh, in response, the Kanaks uh, started to re try and reclaim their land. The Kanak uprising of 1878, the conflict that was arose, was very much connected to the environmental impacts. In more recent times, we've seen these droughts across the region. In 1998, for example, which was a, a time of peak temperatures, there was a significant uh, drought in Papua New Guinea, in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Um, Australia put in 20 or $30 million of food aid to the highlands of Papua New Guinea during the 1998 El Nino phenomenon. Um, that's amazing because, you know, the, the highlands, uh, the, the mountain valleys that make up the highlands of Papua New Guinea are the food bowl of Papua New Guinea. They're rich agricultural land. They're, you know, for millennia, people have had terracing to grow sweet potato and other crops in the highlands. There's massive coffee. Uh, major export money comes out of the, the highlands, uh, beautiful vegetables and so on. So to have a drought through PNG's food bowl has impacts not only on people's livelihoods for people who grow their own food, but also for exports for the economy. And I think this uh, coming summer, because of the strength of the current El Nino we're in is there. So we're going to see these sort of phenomena. But the science is telling us that uh, there are a range of climatic change, not just weather changes, which we see every day, but long-term, decade-long or multi-year-long structural changes in the climate rather than the weather. And those are things like rainfall patterns, the spread of disease as temperatures warm where some diseases like dengue or malaria, infectious diseases in Solomons and so on, may shift areas where they're out there. And these, these sort of long-term climatic changes that take place over decades have significant impacts. Already the Pacific faces major problems with vector-borne uh, diseases like dengue fever and malaria and uh, with shifting climatic patterns over time, scientists are predicting that there'll be significant health and social impacts beyond the impacts on the environment. And this is what we're talking about. We're talking about people's livelihoods, their well-being, their health, their opportunities. And uh, 
all countries, including Australia, have to adapt to the adverse effects of climate change. We've had Cyclone Larry wipe out our banana crop a few years ago, and the projections are from CSIRO, Bureau of Meteorology, and other scientific bodies that the intensity of cyclones will increase in coming decades. Now, we've always already seen the devastation that could be happened by something like Cyclone Pam. If cyclones are going to be more intense, as the projections suggest, this is going to cause enormous setbacks for our small island neighbours as well as for our own economy. Finally, Nick, a battle gearing up here in Australia against the, the nuclear waste dump. This is one feature of, you know, colonialism, that uh, the colonial powers have looked towards so-called empty spaces, deserts and oceans, to test things. People look to the deserts of Australia, to the oceans of the Pacific as a laboratory, essentially, to trial things because of low populations. But, of course, there's not no populations. There have been indigenous communities in the deserts of Australia, at Maralinga, in, around Woomera, at Kubapedi and so on. Um, and we, we think back to the era of nuclear weapons testing uh, in the 1950s, where Britain tested its uh, nuclear weapons between 52 and 57 in Australia, particularly at Maru, Maralinga and Emu Field in South Australia. We saw the same, of, obviously, across the Pacific, in the Marshall Islands, in Kiribati, uh, in French Polynesia, the, the testing of nuclear weapons by Britain, France, the United States at Mororoa. Those sort of impacts are lingering still. The sacrifice zones created by uh, contamination by plutonium and other uh, long-lasting radioactive isotopes has left uh, a terrible heritage for not just the service people who staff the test sites, but also the Aboriginal people or the islanders who live near the test sites. Having created those sacrifice zones during the 1950s and 60s particularly, uh, now uh, there's this push that uh, the same communities should bear the brunt of hosting nuclear waste that comes out of the civilian and military nuclear systems. Um, Australia is, has its waste processed overseas uh, and a shipment just arrived back at Lucas Heights of waste that was reprocessed in France from uh, Australia's uh, Lucas Heights uh, research reactor. So once again, poor indigenous communities who don't have job opportunities and so on are being offered money to host this toxic uh, legacy of the nuclear industry. And um, for the Pacific, I think it's a great concern. And we see this uh, being touted in all sorts of ways. Because of the climate threat, there are a number of companies wandering around the Pacific suggesting that uh, Pacific countries should host geoengineering the idea that uh, through engineering and, and you know, um, putting sulphates into the air, uh, changing uh, the, the ocean, uh, all sorts of massive, you know, regional-wide uh, engineering efforts to draw carbon down out of the atmosphere, that these should be trialled in the Pacific. And once again, there's a great danger that with geoengineering being proposed and maybe needed to address the climate challenge in the future, that the Pacific and indigenous communities in other areas is going to be the trial ground for these sorts of things. So I think it's really important not just to talk about Paris in terms of targets and money, but also to look at it from a, a justice and equity perspective. And indeed, that's the one central failure of um, uh, the Paris Agreement. You know, a whole series of human rights provisions recognising the rights of indigenous people to control what activities happen on their land, 
to recognise that Indigenous communities are affected in different ways to the rest of us by uh, climate change and by the nuclear industry, the Paris Accord doesn't give the sort of protections that many NGOs, many Indigenous activists, many human rights organisations were calling for. Well, all that's left for me to say is thanks very much again, Nick, for your invaluable contribution to the program for yet another year. Oh, no, Jan, it's always a pleasure to, to support 3CR and to share some of the voices from the region, uh, some of the things that I've learnt traipsing around the Pacific. I think it's really uh, important to, you know, support community media, alternative media, simply because um, uh, when you look at the headlines that come from the Pacific, you often don't get the full story. The headline that... Uh, Prime Minister Turnbull has pledged a billion dollars for climate action, needs to be unpacked a bit, and you don't get that through the mainstream media organisations. It's really important then that 3CR and other, other alternative media provide opportunities for us to really understand the world around us and to engage with it. So thanks for the opportunity to join you uh, and uh, look forward to 2016. And thanks to Nick McClellan. You're back next year. And, of course, next year is the big 4-0 for 3CR. In the Arts Express summer season, Valerie Fafala and Trish Posterino are running four special programs on Australian women in jazz. First of all, we'll hear from jazz drummer and organiser of the Melbourne Women in Jazz Festival, Sonia Horbelt. Then contemporary violinist Zani Kolak, sax player Angela Davis, pianist and composer Andrea Keller and stunning jazz vocalist Bridget Allen. They'll be performing their music for our listeners either live in the 3CR studio or with their CDs. We'll also look at the history and experiences of jazz women in the traditionally male arena of jazz in Melbourne, how they became heard in the competitive field, working alongside other male and female musicians for the love of jazz. Our special dates for Australian women in jazz are Thursday, December the 17th, Thursday, January the 7th, 21st and 28th of 2016 at 10.30am till 11am on Thursday. So don't forget to tune in. We resume Arts Express in February 2016. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers since 1976. Now, if you're into Christmas presents, perhaps this could be what you're looking for. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. 
Well, that is all for me for the year, and I'd like to thank all the wonderful people who've donated to the Radiothon through the year to make it a great success, particularly for Tuesday Home Time, and it'll be a great year next one. So I'll just go out with a little bit of music, and in about two minutes' time, we'll be hearing the Radioactive Show. Bye for now.